And I, and I think as we continue this series, Team Spirit, we kicked off that series hearing from Pastor Aaron Grijalva. Man, what an amazing message that was. Pastor Aaron is one of my favorite guys. The message about the nature of the Holy Spirit. And if you miss that, you can catch it online. But, but the, the, the nugget I want to share with you for that is the Holy Spirit is a person and not an it. And the Holy Spirit isn't weird. Those are the things that I wrote down in my notes, which hopefully some of you find encouraging, but I know a few of you here in person or watching online are weirdos, and so you were discouraged by hearing that the Holy Spirit is not weird. We heard last week from Pastor Justin about the nature of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit wants to work with you and wants to work in you and wants to work through you. So I want to continue that our series on the Holy Spirit today by looking at the book of Galatians. And if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open up to that book. We're going to be in chapter 5. And if you don't have your Bible, we're going to put the words on the screen. If you have the smartphone, I encourage you to download the Bible app. That's how I read the Bible most of the time. My daughter thinks I'm just playing games on my phone, which is a problem in our house. But, but that's, the, that's the way that I receive the word. So if that's you, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's your next step. But but we're going to have the words up on the screen. And if you don't know anything about this book, it's a book in the New Testament. It was written by the Apostle Paul. Now, there's a lot to know about Paul. He wasn't one of the original 12 apostles, but he uh, became one of the most important figures in early Christianity, author of more than two-thirds of the New Testament. And this letter was a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Galatia to clarify some bad doctrine, some bad teaching that had crept into that church about the role of the Holy Spirit, what it means to be free, and our relationships with God and with each other. So just a few little things that Paul sought to clarify in this letter. So we're going to dive right into that together, and we're going to put the words up on the screen. Let's start in verse 13. And in verse 13, Paul is explaining the purpose of freedom. And he says, For you, brethren, you've been called to liberty or to freedom. Only don't use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We're going to skip ahead to verse 16, and verse 16 is where Paul famously compares two things, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And he says in verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things of that nature. He said, I warn you as I warned you before, for those of you who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, but the fruit of the Spirit. And so we go works of the flesh to fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And he says against such things there is no law. Now, the juxtaposition, which is just the comparison of those two things, the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. Paul sets these up because he wants us to think intentionally about those differences. 
And now finally, let's look at verse 25. In verse 25, he says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. So, just like I mentioned, this chapter is part of a longer letter that Paul wrote to the church to correct some wrong ways of thinking. So, what you need to know is Paul founded the Galatian church, but uh, after he founded it, he handed it off, and he went to other places to continue his ministry work. Paul traveled around the region and around the known world at the time, starting churches. And what, what Paul finds is he gets disturbing news, and that disturbing news is between the time when he founded the church and when he, when he, uh, when he writes this letter, false teachings have gained influence in this young church, and they've caused division and confusion about an important thing. And that important thing is what we need to do to be in good standing with God. So this letter is a letter that Paul wrote to correct that wrong thinking. And he wrote it for the people at that time at that church. But you know what, as I, as I uh, studied this this week, what I realized was I think it speaks powerfully to us today. So if you've heard me preach before, and it, admittedly, it's been a minute, so, uh, but, but uh, you know that I'm a Paul fanboy, right? Paul is one of my favorite uh, people in the Bible. He's an amazing preacher. He's an amazing scholar. He's an amazing teacher. He's an amazing leader. He's an amazing speaker. He's an amazing writer. All those things, all, all those characteristics that I look at, and I'm like, man, that is the, the, the model of leadership that I want to follow. I can see all those things in Paul. And the thing that I want to highlight here in, in this letter that Paul does is something that, that, that leaders do, and it speak with authenticity. I don't know if you've experienced this, but have you ever been part of, uh, of somebody as, as, who's in leadership and talking to you about something, and you just get the feeling like, I don't think they really know a lot about this. They're just telling me something that they, you know, something that they read in Wikipedia about this. Or they're, look, they're looking at it and you're saying, you know what, like I hear what you're saying, but I know you and I see your eye and I see a disconnect between what you're telling me you do and, and what you actually do. Paul speaks with authenticity. And Paul, and the reason that he speaks with authenticity is he knows that the, that the experience that he's had, God can use to help other people. So those experiences that you've had, positive or negative, know that God wants to use those to help others. So you don't need to be ashamed of them. You don't need to hide from them. You don't need to, to hide those things away and say, I don't want you to see these things in me. Draw, Paul draws on those experiences. And he uses that intentionally to help guide this new church back onto the right path. To put it another way, Paul doesn't just talk the talk. And it's in this that I took the title of my message. So if you're taking notes, I mean, I can see you out there. I know who's taking notes and who isn't. It's good to take notes in church. It's good to be engaged. So if you're taking notes or you're frantically starting to take notes because I just said that, the title of this message is Walk the Walk. So I wanna ask you, will you pray with me? It's our custom here at Velocity to Pray before the preaching of God's word, and then we'll dive into this together. Father God, I need you today. God, I ask that it be your thoughts and your words that go forward. No, nobody needs Jacob's ideas. God, they need your truth. 
And so, God, I'm just praying that, uh, that you customize this word. God, I believe that, there, that, that you have a plan and a purpose for every person here and that, God, that you will supernaturally use this message to reach them. I thank you for it. In Jesus' name. Everybody believes that can say? Amen. Amen. So the Galatians were in trouble. They were listening to false teachers, and these false teachers were feeding them lies about what it takes to be saved. Now let's go through what that lie is. I think it's important to expose the lie, and then we can talk about the correction to it. So what the false teachers were teaching the church was that in order to be saved, it was a simple three-step formula. Now, gosh, like that already, like you got my interest, like a simple three-step plan to being saved. I don't know if you're like this, like my, my social media feed gets filled with BuzzFeed articles that were like, try these four things to get your health back in line. Or like, try these four things you need to exercise anymore. Number five will amaze you. You had false preachers who were giving them, who were giving the Galatians, try these three things. And if you do them, then you'll be in good standing with God. Then you'll be saved. And man, that's seductive. And so here's what their three-step three step formula was. Step one, accept Jesus. Step two, be obedient and uphold all the law. And then step three, if you complete step one and step two successfully, then you were accepted by God. Sounds simple. But there's a lot of places there where people are getting tripped up. So the doctrine that Jesus preached actually contained those same three steps. But critically, the order is different. And it's the ordering here that matters. So what Jesus preached was step one, believe in Jesus. Step two, based on your belief in Jesus, you are made right with God. And then step three, out of an outpouring of God's love and through the strength of the Holy Spirit, you live a life of obedience to God. The ordering here really matters. Do you see the difference? When Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, this is what he meant. The law that was being referenced here was 613 commandments that represented the totality of Jewish law. And so what these teachers were saying is believe in Jesus, uphold all 613 of these rules, which governed how you act, what you wear, what you do, what you eat, what you say, what you think. If you can uphold all of those things, so believe in Jesus, uphold all 613 of those, and then you'll be in God's good favor. You can see the difficulty here. And this was counter to what Jesus had said. Because Jesus knows the most important thing to God is the condition of your heart. But the Galatians had gotten it twisted, and Paul knew that their mistake had eternal consequences. But like I said, one thing you need to know about Paul is he was a good pastor. And what Paul did in that moment was hold firm to his beliefs when the culture around him told him that he was wrong. He knew that the Galatians struggled with that idea that our salvation is independent of our actions and our behaviors. 
That's a hard thing to wrestle, and I think a lot of us wrestle with that today. And I think the reason we wrestle with it is that seems so counter to how we think the world works, right? I mean, how many of you, you get what you deserve? I mean, how many of us have heard that, have said it, have lived it? It's a principle that governs our earthly realm to some extent. You get what you deserve. And so the tension here was when they saw Jesus' teaching were in conflict with this idea that I hold that says, oh, well, if the world is fair, you should get what you deserve. If the world is just, you should get what you deserve. And the thing that they were grappling with was that, that we do have a God who is fair, who is fully just, but is also fully merciful. And it's in this tension between these two things that the Galatian church got lost. You get what you deserve seems so simple and intuitive that we grab onto it, but it's not how it works in the kingdom of Jesus. So what Paul's letter demonstrates and what I was reminded of when I was preparing this message this week is a lot of times Christians overlook a big part of what took place on the cross and it impacts how we approach ourselves and our relationship with God. Let me illustrate it with a simple story. So imagine there's a pastor who's preaching and in that message, he stopped and paused and he asked those in attendance a simple question. How many of you out there think you're as righteous as I am? And if you think you're as righteous as me, Hold up your hands. All right, good. We know that this is a, a, a rhetorical example. But did you feel the tension? That felt really uncomfortable, right? That felt really awkward. So uh, in this story, we see that this pastor asks this question, and not everybody raises their hands, but a few kind of bold people are like, yeah, I, I, I think I'm as righteous as you are, pastor. The pastor says, okay. It feels a little uncomfortable though, right? That's why I'm telling you about it versus us doing it together. So we went on to say, okay, how many of you out there think you're as righteous as Mother Teresa? Wow, kicked it up a notch. And what the pastor experienced is like, some of those hands that were up, like kind of sheepishly kind of came down and people are kind of looking out of the side of their, side of their eyes being like, what, what does this person next to me think? You know, this is a, this is a room where everybody's like, and what is, what is happening in here? So are you as righteous as Mother Teresa? That was most, hand, most hands are down, but a few stayed up. Third question. Tension builds. He says, all right, is there anybody here who would say that they are as righteous as Jesus? Oof. Zero hands are up. Every hand went down. I don't want to ask you if you were there what would you have done? I started this out by talking with Pastor Justin. I was like, oh, I've got this, and we're going to go through this. And he was like, do not do that. <laughs> do, do not do that. You can talk about it, but don't do it. But I want you to think for a second, what would you do? Would your hand be up or would it be down? Are you as righteous as Jesus? And here's what we miss in the crucifixion. As believers, we freely acknowledge, we talk about, that Jesus took the past burden of our sin, our past sin, our present sin, our future sin. Jesus took all of that. 
He took it with him, he bore it on the cross, and he suffered the punishment for it that was rightfully ours. And we know and we acknowledge that when he died for that sin, our slate was wiped clean. But what I want to remind you is something that I think we too often forget. That transfer of sin is, imp- is an important part of the crucifixion, but it's only part of the story of the exchange that happened between us and between Jesus up there on the cross. Yes, Jesus in that moment took away all of your sin, prepaid the penalty for it all. But he didn't just take that from you, he gave you something in exchange, his righteousness. Jesus lived a sinless life. We talked about those 613 laws. Jesus perfectly upheld every detail of God's law. But what's amazing, and the part that we miss, is through the cross. Not just was your sin wiped away, but his perfect obedience to God and God's law was credited to you. So that when you accept Jesus, in God's eyes, you become what Jesus is. Sinless and perfect. And so being saved by faith doesn't just mean that your standing with God is, is, is set in the realm of as if you've, just as if you've never sinned. That's what I always heard growing up. So if you accept Jesus, your standing with God is God treats you just as if you've never sinned. It's actually way better than that. It's just as if I have always obeyed. That brings me to my first point. Your walk and your status are separate. This means that if you've been saved, if you've accepted Jesus, going back to that example, boldly your hand would rightfully be up for that last question. Not because you earned it. And that's where that's hard, right? Your hand would be up not because you've earned that righteousness through your actions, but because it was a gift given to you as part of Jesus' perfect gift for you. Simply because you acknowledged your need for him and his sovereignty in your life. Paul's letter implores us to remember that our status with God is determined by our faith in Jesus. Paul tells us that the biggest threat to our salvation isn't what the false teachers were teaching, that, uh, that, that it's about uh, how good we act. But the biggest threat is whether or not we attempt, we approach God attempting to earn that good status through our actions. Your walk with God is distinct from your status with him. Now, it would be remiss, I would be doing you a disservice to stop there. Because what that feels like is, well, now my actions don't matter. I can do what I have complete freedom to do whatever I want. And we see people misinterpret this part of, of scripture in that way. This absolutely doesn't mean that your actions don't matter and we can just do whatever we feel like whenever we feel like it. Verse 13 tells us that. It tells us not to use our freedom and our liberty to indulge ourselves 
but we're to use them to serve one another. This means that your actions actually do really matter, but not for the reason you may think. The freedom you received when you accepted Christ means your sins are wiped away. It means the righteousness of Jesus is transferred to you, but it means another thing. It means the Holy Spirit in that moment has come upon you and dwells within you. And this means that the struggle of the flesh and the spirit that Paul talks about is real within you. Once you accept Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. But here's the part that we, here's another part we often get twisted, is we think once I've accepted Jesus, I should never be tempted to make a bad decision. That, that life, that I should be on easy street, that, 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 that everything should just be simple and straightforward, and that I'll be able to live this clean, sinless life moving forward. What we lose sight of is the fact that that old, earthly, fleshy desire that you have in you, that all of us have in us, in that moment, it doesn't disappear. It's still hanging around, right? It's still trying to trip you up when it has the opportunity. Paul said it this way in a different letter that he wrote to the Roman church. He said, now, if I do what I don't want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living within me. So why do your actions matter? Your actions matter because observing them is one of the best indicators you have about that inward condition of your heart, about who you're giving authority to in your life. Whether or not you're using your gifts to glorify God or whether you're using them to glorify yourself. In other words, who's winning that internal battle? Let's look back at verse 19 and we're gonna put it back on the screen. And what we see is what parts of our earthly self, I think we have that, maybe not, what parts of our earthly self we may be surrendering control to. So verse 19 is, is the works of the flesh. And so when we see those, there we go, are we surrendering to our self-gratification, our libido, are we surrendering to our own ego, our own fears and anxieties, our pridefulness, our gluttony? Paul tells us what to expect when that happens in our lives. Are you experiencing disagreement? Are you experiencing conflict? Are you experiencing emptiness, animosity, self-centeredness, overindulgence? Those are the consequences of using that freedom to serve yourself rather than, rather than honoring God as serving others. And let's be honest. I think, it's church, we need to be honest, right? I see myself in that list more than, more than I wish I did. And probably if you're being honest with yourself, my guess is you probably see yourself in that list more than you wish that you did. Paul did too, actually. In that same letter to the Romans, Paul said this, I don't understand what I do. This is one of the verses, uh, a sidebar, uh, in, in my walk with faith, this, this struggle and this conflict about like, how do I moderate my actions? Like what, what are God's priorities for my life? Like working through all of those things. Um, this is a verse that weirdly was so comforting to me in terms of like figuring out, figuring out like what's my place and, and what does God think about me? And Paul says, I, I, I don't understand what I do, 
For what I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate, I do. Man, I love the, I mean, I, I love the, uh, the brutal honesty of Paul in this scripture. He's authentic. He's experiencing these things. Paul, author of two-thirds of the New Testament, a man who had a literal encounter with God, a man who, who sees like, uh, who just sees progress and, 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 and step after step of people being led to Jesus and the Christian, the Christian faith growing, a guy who's instrumental, God is using in a mighty way, says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. And what I hate, I do that. We know what the right thing is, but a lot of times we fail to do it. Instead, we do things that we know aren't right. How do we reconcile that with, the, with this idea of, of, uh, of when we're saved, the Holy Spirit lives in us and we're living a life submitted to that? How do, what do we do if we find ourselves there? I think for a lot of us, and when I say a lot of us, I'll, I'll say me and maybe you, struggle with this. It's a, it's a sticking point because it's another version of this legalism. We make mistakes, we try to do better, we do things that we know aren't good for us, we beat ourselves up, and we say, man, I, I don't know if you've been there. I've been there. I've said, hey, I, I did that. I'm done with that. I am, I'm not doing that anymore. And I don't know what that thing is for you, but maybe that's, I'm not going to, I'm going to stop looking at things that I know I'm not supposed to look at. Maybe it's, I'm going to stop being so argumentative with my spouse. Maybe it's, I'm going to stop spending time with that person. And, you know, you beat yourself up over that. And then maybe you say, like, and then maybe you don't do that thing for a while. But I don't know if you're like me or like Paul. Oftentimes we, find our, we end up finding ourselves doing that exact thing again, that thing that we hate. We do it again. The works of the flesh come back in full display on our lives. Even though I said, man, I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm done with that. How, why does that happen? I think verse 16 gives us the answer. I think we can put that back on the screen. It says, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This brings me to my second point. It's simple, taken right from scripture. I'm not Pastor Justin, I don't have clever rhymes with these. A second point is walk by the Spirit. Now, I am not a theologian. I'm not a scholar, I don't, I, I don't speak Greek, uh, but you know what? I have resources in the name of Google. And so here's what it told me. When we look at that word walk, there are a number of different words in Greek that get translated into the English word walk. In that last verse, the word walk in the Greek is peripateo. You say that with me? Peripateo. So it gets translated as walk. So now you have some Greek, go out to lunch, you can impress some friends, be the smart person at the cocktail party. So we, we see that word walk, that version of it, used in other places. And I think it's, for me, it was helpful to see where else that's used, because it gives you context on what it means. We see the word peripateo used 
in Acts, when Peter and John heal the lame beggar outside the temple gates, Scripture tells us the man sprung up and began to walk, peripateo. It's also used in Matthew when Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water with Jesus. Jesus calls him out. Peter steps on the surface of the water and walks, peripateo. And then we see it used here, walk by the spirit, peripateo, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What's common across those? In all three of those uses, the individual walking is doing so not by their own strength or their own ability, but by the power granted to them by someone else. That idea is consistent with one of the definitions of peripateo, which is to seize upon an opportunity that's made available to you. So when Paul says, and this was helpful, for, I had never seen it this way before, but when Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you'll have strength over your earthly, fleshy self that's pushing you to do those things, you, you don't, those things that you hate, Paul isn't saying, walk towards the Spirit. Paul isn't saying, keep the Spirit close by you as you walk. Neither of those things are bad things, but it's not what Paul's telling us. He's saying, walk through your life relying not on your own strength, but the strength given to you by God through the Holy Spirit when you surrendered your life to Jesus. And that strength will help you resist those earthly desires. That strength automatically, and you say they're in conflict. They're in conflict, but there is no uh, ambiguity about who will win that conflict. And, And what Paul is saying is if you lean into that strength, don't misinterpret. There's nothing wrong with determination. There's nothing wrong with willpower. There's nothing wrong with any of those things. God gave you those, but he doesn't want you to use them as substitutes for your relationship with him. If I can be honest, this is maybe the thing that I struggle with most. When I struggle, my earthly self tells me that surrendering that thing to God and handing control will disappoint God because I'd be letting him down because he's given me all of these gifts. And despite that, I still can't figure it out myself. And you know what? I think the opposite is true. I think when that happens, God says, Jacob, despite your gifts, your talents, and your abilities, you made the choice to rely on me and invite me in. I'm so proud of you for doing that, and I'm proud of the person that you're growing into. So how do you know if you're successful in that surrender? Paul gives us a list, and we can put verse 22 back on the screen. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Notice this list paints a perfect picture of the character of Jesus. By walking in the Spirit, the Spirit helps and encourages you to grow more like Christ. But there's one more walk in this passage I want to give you, because a good sermon has to have three points, right? And it's in verse 25, so let's go back to that. And it says, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Notice the word walk again. So it's the third point. We've got walk by the Spirit, The third one is walk in the spirit. So this is a different Greek word for walk. The word here is stoicheo. You say that with me? 
Stoicheo. So Stoicheo is translated into walk, but it means a really different thing. It literally means to keep in step in the way that soldiers march in formation. It's comparatively rare, used much less in the Bible. What this means is if the Spirit dwells in you, Paul is calling you to be Spirit-led. A military formation marches in obedience with the leader. We live in a society that tells you that what freedom means is freedom from authority, that, that if you're free, you don't need to be submitted to anything. And that's the best version of freedom. Scripture tells us different, that true freedom is found in submitting yourself to be led by the Spirit. That choice to follow the leading of the Spirit is one that we have to make, not just once, but continuously and continually. Next, to march as a soldier marches in formation means you have to make the decision to be part of something bigger than yourself. If you live in the Spirit, you're making the decision to love sacrifice. If the Holy Spirit dwells inside you, it's not optional for you to choose we over me. To walk in the Spirit means we make the intentional choice to take the responsibility to lead, to shape the world around us, to communicate and spread the life-changing message of Jesus. But here's the last piece that I really want to leave you with, and I hope it's an encouraging word for you today. Last, walking in the Spirit means being committed to community. Have you ever seen a soldier marching in formation alone? No, you can't. By definition, that can't exist. A formation requires other people. It isn't singular. You have to have a commitment to community. You heard Kathy talk about prioritizing the weekends, being part of a group, and making a difference through teams. These aren't optional add-ons to the Spirit-filled life. What Paul tells us is a necessary consequence of receiving the power of the Holy Spirit is to be engaged in community. If you're saved and you're sitting on the sidelines, and we love you. Pastor Justin loves you. Pastor Marissa loves you. This isn't, a, this isn't about guilt. It is about what I want to tell you is if you are saved and you're sitting on the sidelines, you're missing out on the best things that God has for you. And that's what this church wants is for you to experience God's best for your life.